Don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily, you never have to feel that way again. JDW Sheet Music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download only will be made available immediately after purchase. To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. Hey, oboists, have you checked out MKL Reads lately? MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reads where you can try reads from various makers and then select the one that is best for you. How cool is that? Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code double space read space dish, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists. Bassoonists. And the people who love them. My voice is back. You sound like yourself. <laughs> I do. And if I don't a little bit, it's because we're recording this at 5.30 a.m. So I'm a little tired. I'm but... so sorry. We <laughs> texted yesterday and we were like, when we're going to record the dish? And I said, well, let's do 6.30 a.m. And we were like, great. But we forgot that I'm still in Eastern time. <laughs> So it's 6.30 for me and it's 5.30 for you. And I'm just sitting here, like usually Jackie texts me, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like, hey girl, I'm here. (laughs) And you're like, what? (laughs) And I was getting ready very serendipitously. I always get up at five and uh, I was getting ready to go out for my daily run, which has started to become a thing in my life. Oh my God. Tell me more. Well, I've never been athletic. I've never been a runner. As I told you, you know, I'm five foot tall and, you know, a little more buxom body type. And it's just, (laughs) you know, always been like, oh, that thing. And there was a period in my doctorate when I was um, into running and I did some 5Ks and that type of stuff, but I really fell out of it. And if you're not in it, it is so hard to get started but I felt inspired to give it a try again. And the first day I went out, I made it to the mailboxes like four houses down and felt like I was going to die. (laughs) (laughs) And so I decided to let it be kind of this metaphor for my relationship with the bassoon and and my relationship with goals in general where, you know, okay, I I could only make it to the mailboxes four houses down and maybe tomorrow I can make it to the mailboxes five houses down. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just starting to kind of set small, reasonable goals for myself and be proud of myself when I achieve them and keep the focus on the daily routine and, and not be disappointed that, I'm not running a marathon. Just be proud of myself for the the small increments at which I'm improving. And that has really trickled over to my bassoon mentality in ways that are super positive. So I'm enjoying it, even if it is a big challenge for me. And it is physically, it's a very big challenge for me, but it's good. Oh, that's so great. That seems really healthy and happy. Yeah, it's great. I have not been running. I have been preferring to stay inside and do an at-home yoga practice in the comfort of my air conditioning. (laughs) So that has actually been really good because, I don't know, I just turned 35 and in the morning, sometimes, I say sometimes, but it's like every morning, I I wake up and I feel like an old crone who just 
hobbles out of bed and I'm like, I got to do something. So I've been doing yoga every morning just to stretch it out. And I have been noticing actually that it's making my core stronger and it's helping my oboe playing in that it feels like I'm freeing up my rib cage. And then my vibrato has become a lot more free. Yeah. So that's been what I've been doing every morning. I don't wake up at five, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are not dishing about our morning routines. No. We are dishing about what instrument we would play if we were to pick a different instrument. So I want to know what instrument would you play if you didn't play the bassoon? If I had been sane and if I had thought about the long term when choosing my instrument. um, I'm not even going to laugh because it's true. It's so true. (laughs) It's so true. Um, No, I love the bassoon. It's great. Um, (laughs) I love it. It's great. I love everything about my (laughs) instrument. It never frustrates me. I was thinking about it. And I think the correct answer is the violin. Oh, thank God. I thought you were going to say something else and I was going to disown you as a friend. You thought I was going to say the clarinet? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I love the clarinet too. If I had to play a different wind instrument, I think it would be the clarinet. But the (laughs) violin, okay, here's the thing. They have amazing repertoire, solo, orchestral, chamber, even just getting to be in a string quartet. Oh my God. Every once in a while, we throw around the idea of like transposing string quartet. Because the rep is just so great. And I teach a ton of music history. And so the amazing string repertoire is like always like right there in my face. I'm being reminded that I'll never play it. Yes. (laughs) So I would play the violin for the rep, but then also lip gloss. They can wear it. And we can't because it gets all over our reeds. They can eat while they play. Oh my gosh. They could like chew gum. They can talk. They can blow bubbles with their gum. (laughs) They can play forever and they don't get tired. And also they have buff arms because they're like lifting stuff all day. But oh, do you know what just came to my mind? The downside? What? That neck hickey. Oh yeah, that is, that's I changed my mind. (laughs) I'll think about it and revise my answer. Neck hickeys or lip gloss. You know, we can't have it all. It's true. (laughs) What would you play? Um, Well, I thought about it. My original answer was the double bass because... What? (laughs) That's what I wanted to play as a kid. I said, Dad, I don't want to play the clarinet anymore. Can I play the double bass? And he laughed in my face and said, no. (laughs) Because he loves you. And I've been bitter about it my entire life. (laughs) Just kidding, dad. Well, let me tell you when you are not bitter is when you're having to fly somewhere across the country with your oboe. I bet you're real glad that it is not a double bass. I don't know how they do it. Yeah. So that's why I can't really commit to the double bass, although I do love the double bass. So I'm the oboist of this duo. Girl, you know I like being in that limelight. And I don't think I could give it up. So That's true. I think my answer would actually be voice. <gasps> that is a fantastic answer. But like in this parallel universe, we have voices that people want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. No neck hickeys. No. Well, maybe opera, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> I would just be like a gorgeous Lyric soprano. What I mean, I would. It would be the sparkliest dresses. It would be the most lipstick. I think I'd be a dramatic soprano, and I would just like, oh yeah, scream in people's faces and watch their hair oh blow God. back and be like, yeah, you. Yeah. That would be so therapeutic. <laughs> <laughs> well, we asked our listeners this question, and we got so many responses. So many, but there was a lot of overlap. It was very surprising. Yeah, there was a lot of voting for the French horn or the cello. Which I think this, like, listen, I'm not going to say that anyone's opinion is wrong. But I think (laughs) that what they mean is they like to listen to the French horn. Because when I think about playing the horn, that to me is the most stressful endeavor 
that one could oh ever start. I And I agree. The horn is the most beautiful instrument. It's so lovely. But would I ever want to play it? No. Listen, you're preaching to the choir. I am married to a horn player. And playing the horn is like fumbling around in the dark, looking for a specific needle in a stack of needles. It is so <laughs> stressful. <laughs> But the cello is great, except for the transportation issue. What is it about the cello that makes our listeners just so psyched? Well, it's pretty sexy. It is. They have great repertoire, too. Mm-hmm. Similar rich tenor sound, but no reeds, Rachel says. Okay, Rachel, I see you. I agree. <laughs> Aaron Hill says, cello, the Dvorak concerto, is the first piece I ever fell in love with. And the solo cello part seems easier than the second oboe excerpt. <laughs> good one. It's good. It's true. <laughs> Well, the one string instrument that has not gotten any love thus far got some from Corey. She says, the viola, I love viola jokes so much, I get to hear them all the time. <laughs> we got some really fun submissions too. For example, Cece says harp, and I'm already playing it. So when I retire, I may be at least an intermediate player. And then she sent in a picture of her practicing harp. The harp is really beautiful instrument. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Well, and the neighbors are never going to like pound down your door being like, will you stop with that incessant harp? Like, will you stop with that incessant magical sound? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got a funny one from Carl Wolf who says fiddle. I tried once. The bridge collapsed and a string broke off and flew across the room. Suddenly reeds didn't seem so bad. <laughs> yeah, the universe was sending you a message. Abby says, low brass so I could do drum corps and not lose my bassoon chops. That would be so fun. And I think that Abby and I have a very different definition of fun. But <laughs> yes, <laughs> knock yourself out in that drum corps, girl. <laughs> Brendan says, organ, I would love to not only fill up a room with sound, but an entire building, which I think is a really great point. The organ's pretty epic. Yeah, excellent point. But if you make a mistake on the organ, the whole world knows. The whole world knows. It's like on CNN <laughs> <laughs> when someone makes a mistake on the organ. <laughs> Lindsay says something with strings. I see those guys eating in rehearsal all the time. Lindsay, your motivation is absolutely correct. And I back you 100%. Yes. Snacks are very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christina says the piano, the best repertoire, and they have so many job opportunities. And that's a very good point. If you can accompany people, you're always going to be able to make money. So, and then my favorite one came from Nanette baseball. <laughs> <laughs> So we all know that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know that you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries at the Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall, it's like a farmer's market, and it's filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their own reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers, and who knows, one day maybe your reeds will be for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any gender reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool row. Visit them at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just reed knives. Hey, let's talk about Jenna Ingalls Reads. 
She has built her business on providing high-quality handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds, or cane handcrafted to your specifications and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH, all caps, for 10% off their first order at JennetIngle.com. That's J-E-N-N-E-T-I-N-G-L-E.com. We are delighted to welcome to Double Dish, Margaret Marco, Professor of Oboe at the University of Kansas. Welcome to Double Dish. It's my pleasure to be here. Could we start by having you tell our listeners how you came to the oboe? How did you get started on this music-making journey? Well, we started quite early in our program, our band program in school, um, unlike a lot of schools around here, we actually started in fourth grade. So um, I just I went to the presentation where you see all the instruments and the oboe wasn't even there. Um, and I chose the clarinet and I came home and I announced I was going to play the clarinet. Um, but then my brother, who's a year older than me, wanted to play the oboe, which I'd never actually heard of. Um, but, you know, he's my bigger brother. And so I took his advice and <laughs> ended up picking the oboe just because it was the one that, you know, was the oddball. Um, and it just kind of stuck. So yeah, I basically started in the school program. So, you know, I have a lot of um, admiration for band directors and anybody who, who starts students in those early stages, because a lot of great oboists come out, come out of those programs. Did you know you wanted to be a professional musician early on? Or was this something that was a little slower to realize? Well, you know, it was a big part of my life all along. Um, I was also involved in theater. Um, and there was a while where I thought I was going to be an actress, but <laughs> a lot of my family members sort of discouraged that career um, because, you know, he wasn't as stable as perhaps the music career might have been. Wait, so they, it was a no on acting, but it was a yes on oboe? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like a solid yes. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's the irony of the whole thing. I think. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm glad you caught that. Um, so, <laughs> um, and then I was just involved in a lot of. Uh, sub, I went to summer camp, and since I was taking lessons in oboe, and you know, I started to get have a lot of a little bit of success like you know win all state and that sort of thing um it, it was something that was just people encouraged me my family encouraged me my teachers encouraged me and no one ever said specifically hey this could be a great career but um it definitely was something that I just seemed to have an affinity for yeah it wasn't until really you know like time to start thinking about college junior and high school when I thought well I've been doing music and oboe all this time maybe this is my career can you take us through the journey going to college and, and pursuing oboe and starting as a professional, that second phase of starting your career? I went to Northwestern for my undergraduate degree. And so I studied with Ray Still, who, you know, as you know, he plays Chicago Symphony, played with the Chicago Symphony for many years. Um, and, you know, his students all were orchestral bound. And I guess I sort of thought that that would be my route as well. Um, and indeed, when I got done with my undergraduate degree, I started um, a, to play with an orchestra in Maracaibo, Venezuela, in um, the Orchestra Sinfonica de Maracaibo. So that was for two years. So um, that got me some real orchestral chops and made me think, okay, this is something I love doing. And at some point, I'll come back to the States and start taking auditions. Well, I um, wasn't crazy about the whole audition process. So I thought maybe I'll go back and start a master's degree in music education, a performance, like a double degree in music education, music performance for my master's. Um, so right out of my master's degree, I got a job at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. Mm -hmm. And that just sort of was, that sort of sealed my fate, as it were, you know, for my career. Um, getting that college teaching job was sort of what launched me into 
you know, where I am right now at the University of Kansas. That must have been such a shock to go to Venezuela as such a young person and into a completely different musical environment. What was that experience like for you? Well, yeah, it was quite a shock. For me, it seemed fairly demanding. Um, luckily, since I'd studied with Ray Still, I felt like I had a really good background in orchestral excerpts and I was able to apply that knowledge. So I felt prepared as far as that goes. But yeah, it was a whole different culture. I had to learn the language. I didn't know Spanish when I went down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily, there were a lot of Americans in the orchestra, so I was able to hang out with them and get a lot of help and support from them. Though um, in my second year there, it seemed like a lot of the Americans left to go back to the States, and um, I had to rely on my own Spanish skills and and the friends also that I met while I was there, you know, the, my friends from the orchestra who were um, from Venezuela and other Spanish-speaking countries. So um, by then I felt fairly established and, and comfortable being there. But it was, yeah, it was definitely a culture shock, um, and I was a little naive, so I, did, I guess it didn't bother me so much. Um, Perhaps if I went there now, just being a little wiser and older, it might shock me a little bit more, uh, certain things. But it was, a, it was a fantastic experience. I would never have traded it for the world. Do you encourage your students to seek international opportunities like that? Oh, absolutely. I just think it's the best thing. You know, even if it's not necessarily playing, um, just anything to get out of the country and gain that extra, extra perspective and you know, music and culture and just how other people live. It's just so, so rewarding. So if students can do that, I just so encourage that. And we have a lot of international studies programs through KU. So so a lot of my students do take advantage of it. And I'm just so, so happy for them that they can do that. Going back to your discussion of being torn between the oboe and acting, I wonder how (laughs) the two inform each other, or rather, if your experience in acting has impacted you as an oboist at all? You know, that is a really excellent question, because I think that in some regards, we have to just come outside of ourselves a little bit when we perform, not necessarily act or be somebody who we're not, uh, you know, um, but we have to let's face it, you know, we're up there to entertain our audiences. So um, if I'm feeling grumpy one day for a performance, I can't necessarily let that influence how I'm going to play or how I'm going to look. You know, you do have to sort of rise to the occasion and um, put on a little bit of a facade when it comes to playing. So, um, and just that whole idea of exaggerating your, you know, and acting, you exaggerate your expressions. Well, in music, we know we have to do that too, so that um, your your phrasing and your dynamic contrasts are are perceived by the audience. So that whole idea that you know you just really have to be focused and on top of it while you're playing, and, and yeah, just kind of get outside of your head a little bit um, and adopt you know a persona that will help you shine you know to the audience. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm imagining you leaving Venezuela and coming back to Luther College. In <laughs> Iowa. Uh, <laughs> Iowa. <laughs> was, were you torn about pursuing a teaching track? We, we often see these as binaries. You know, you go the orchestral performance track or you go the teaching track. And do you see it that way? And were you ever conflicted about pursuing a teaching career? Not really. Um, I have to say, before I went to Luther, I did start, I got a master's at the University of Iowa. And while I was there, I did a ton of performing. So it never felt like I had a void in my life. I know if I hadn't had that opportunity, I would have felt really sad. Um, So I was glad to be able to still be able to perform quite a bit. Um, I played with the Quad City Symphony while I was there and, um, you know, just a couple other freelance sorts of gigs made me feel like. I could make this transition. Um, and then when I got to Luther, I still played with two orchestras, one in Dubuque, Iowa, and one in La Crosse, Wisconsin. So I was playing a couple of concerts a month, plus freelancing and recitals, um, chamber music, all that sort of thing. So, and I, I just felt like, you know, it felt a little more comfortable. It felt like the existence was a little less of a hustle. Um, 
and that I could have almost the best of both worlds because I had the security of a job um, and I like teaching and I like meeting students and um, getting to know people from um, just all different walks of life. But uh, I liked having that freedom of deciding whether I could play chamber music or solo recital or, you know, orchestra music. So in a way, it seemed like um, an, a, a pretty smooth transition to me. And I never had that feeling like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to my playing chops are going to waste away or anything. It just seemed like a, it was just kind of destined to be. <laughs> and now you are at KU which is a renowned research institution. And I would be interested in knowing what some of your favorite projects have been over the course of your career, the creative endeavors that we take on as academics. Uh, what, how are some of the standouts as you look back? Well, one of the first things I did right when I got to KU was get a new faculty grant, um, which a lot of new faculty get. And I used the money to spend the summer in Paris and do some research at the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, looking at 18th century prints of French oboes and others. There are a lot of things there in the library that are unpublished. They're still just sort of in print form. Uh, a lot of the sonatas have secret bases that are not realized. Um, and I collected a few of those and I went through the whole library, I made a bit of uh, uh, annotated bibliography and chose a few to record and that was my first big project that I still kind of see as like one of the highlights of my career and hope to make another one very soon starting the, the very in, at the very beginning stages of planning and the next CD of French Baroque music um, but I was so lucky to have the funding to go do that and then um, work with really wonderful musicians to put the CD together and yeah, that's, that was probably one of the first and most important things that I did. Um, other things, I've been really lucky to play with the Kansas City Chamber Orchestra since like my second year at KU, so now it's about 20 years. That's been just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, that orchestra focuses on uh, Baroque and early classical music, but they also venture into modern music every once in a while. Um, and I've sold with them on a number of occasions. And a lot of the musicians from that orchestra, the strings at least, play with the Kansas City Symphony. Um, so it's a very high level of performance. And it's just been, just been a fantastic experience. So those are the two things that really stick out. Um, more recently, I got a grant for $10,000 to commission a concerto for Oboe de Moore and strings. And my colleague at the University of Kansas, Forrest Pierce, wrote that for me. And we premiered that with the uh, Kansas City Chamber Orchestra in 2016. And then we did a repeat performance a year later. So um, it's a great piece of work. And I'm glad to make that contribution to the repertoire. And so, yeah, that's sort of the bookends of my, my activities. That's really interesting. How did you come to envision Obo de Moore as a concerto soloist? That's kind of an interesting offering you don't see every day. Yeah, that's kind of a weird one, <laughs> but <laughs> I um, <laughs> I got a wonderful Obo de Moore when I was, I don't know, like in my fourth year of teaching at KU. Um, it's a Bolgaroni, and I really love those instruments, um, and it was affordable. So I thought, I, I just, I want to play more Bach. I want to play, that's why I got it, because I thought it'd be fun to play Baroque music with the demore and not have to transpose for oboe or English horn. You know, we, we always have to do that with some of those arias if we don't have the demore. Mm -hmm. So I got this instrument thinking I would use it for Bach and then just fell in love with it and started to find works for, for it to play. I always tried to play one piece for demore at my faculty recitals. And, um, and then uh, Forrest, my, my colleague at KU, wrote a piece not for oboe demore solo, mostly for soprano, um, we have a wonderful soprano here in Kansas City named Sarah Anderson. So he wrote a piece for um, soprano and orchestra with oboe de more sort of obligato. And I just fell in love with that piece. It's so beautiful. And that's when Forrest and I started talking about, we just have to get you to write a concerto for oboe de more because I, I think it's one of the few oboe de more concertos written by an American composer in the hmm. 20th century. 21st century. And so it just seemed like, it, you know, there was a void there and that we could fill. 
Um, and he loved the instrument and I love playing it and I love his music. So it just kind of seemed like it fell into place like that. And when we got the grant, um, it was like, yeah, no turning back. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of all, just, the part just fell into place so, so easily. It was wonderful. Could you talk us through your purpose and motivation behind grant writing? I always love to hear successful grant writers talk about the grant writing process and, you know, the journey that they took to get there that was successful. The first big grant that I got was um, a National Endowment for the Arts grant for my trio, Allegress. It's a oboe, flute, and piano trio. And um, we toured Western Kansas and commissioned two works, um, one by, no, three works, one by Ingrid Stoltzel, another by Annie Guzman, Gutzo from Wyoming and another colleague of mine, Kip Haheim. So we had three new works that we commissioned and we toured Western Kansas. And um, that one was for, um, to reach out to underserved areas. And we went to Russell, Kansas, where, you know, not a lot of touring groups go through. And we played for um, a crowd of 500 students. They were brought in from on buses to um, Russell High and we, um, performed for them and then broke down into master classes and that sort of thing. And we played at a few other venues along the way. And then later we recorded all of those works. So that was our first CD. Could you describe your approach to read making? How do you, when you get a new freshman who has never made a read before, how Uh do you approach introducing the topic of read making in a way that is not completely overwhelming? Well, I think breaking it down is probably a good way to go about it. Um, so with a freshman who's brand new to read making, we'll just start with tying. And I don't even, we don't even shape or gouge or anything. We just start with shaped cane and perfect the tying. Because um, that, I think once you get the hang of tying, that's something you can do sort of in your sleep, you know, or watching TV or something. But it's a slow process at first. And it seems sort of um, frustrating. Um, and there's no point in going through with learning how to scrape if the tie isn't perfected. You know, if you're still tying and you're getting leaky reads or crooked reads, there's no point in, in learning how to do the scrape yet. So mm-hmm. we kind of spend uh, half of the semester learning how to tie and making sure that that's all in place. Um, I'd just say a lot of my freshmen come in at least having some knowledge of, of the tying process. So that mm-hmm. usually goes pretty fast, but we mm-hmm. not quite half a semester. Then, uh, once that's all in place, then we go to the scraping. And um, I think part of it is making sure that they have good equipment, like a sharp knife. They're using good cane so that when they do have a successful go with the scrape, you know, their efforts aren't for naught if they have bad cane or bad staple. Um, Sometimes just getting them set up with the right uh, materials and equipment, tools and all of that is is as important as anything that first mm-hmm. semester of remaking. Um, so yeah, then we go on to scraping and, and all along, you know, I tell them to continue with ever, whatever resource they've been using, whether it's their teacher in high school or um, an online source, I just warn them that they're not going to be able to get off of that source of reads that first year. They're probably still going to need to get read. I think a lot of students come in thinking, Oh, I'm in read class. I'm going to be able to make my own reads and play my own reads. <laughs> but yes. I have to kind of keep reminding them, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> so and I guess the biggest challenge is just making sure they have enough cane, enough staples so that they can just be making tons and tons and practicing constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, to encourage them at first, you know, of course the process is tedious and the time takes quite a while, but after that they seem to, um, when they can get through and start to make reads a little bit faster, then, then they can, really can take off, you know. And so, yeah, just patience and having all the right equipment is, is key. Mm-hmm. What is some of the most common advice you find yourself giving the young musicians in your studio in lessons? What are some common pitfalls they fall into? I think the biggest thing is just time management. Um, trying mm-hmm. not to pull those all-nighters, you know, just be a little mm-hmm. more organized um, and really try to manage your time because I see students really, especially freshman year, getting 
sick a lot or stressed out a lot. And that makes me really worry. I don't, I don't you know, I get really nervous when I see students kind of coming in, um, kind of, kind of freaked out. Um, and you can see the stress in their eyes, you know, and, and of course they're not going to play as well. And then they, that just sort of contributes to, it just sort of exacerbates um, a, maybe already sort of like unpreparedness for the lesson. So, you know, if they're not quite ready for a lesson, you know, we'll have a little chat about how well they're managing their time, how much sleep they're getting. I, I don't consider myself a health nut, but I mean, I think I, I eat pretty well. So I sometimes I'll just ask them, you know, what are you, what are you eating? Are you eating a regular, you know, are you on the three meal a day plan or you just like eat whenever you like at five o'clock is that your lunchtime? So we, we kind of try to go over a little bit of that. So that first semester, sometimes we hash through some of that stuff and um, I think that's almost just as important as, you know, getting through Barrett or learning a new piece. It's mm-hmm. just, yeah, trying to manage your time really well. How do you approach running your studio class? Uh, studio class. <laughs> studio class um, is great. I love it. Um, a lot of times we do special topics, um, but then um, every once in a while we'll have a semester where we're working on a piece. And we spend the semester sort of doing double read ensemble stuff or oboe ensemble stuff. Um, that was last semester. We learned a piece. It was based on Tampa de Couperin, and it was by um, Dirk Michael Kirsch. And oh, he he's great. That. Yeah, isn't he great? Oh, the yeah. piece is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we learned that in performance, performance class called Recitals 100 that I teach as well at KU. Um, and I think it was nice for the students to take a break from hearing me yak away at studio class um but um and then on the semesters when we're not doing oboe ensemble we try to hit i try to hit orchestral excerpts pretty hard because that um seems to be a good place where they can do those and play for each other and learn those together um and it's more of a you know performance venue than just their regular lesson. so kind of goes back and forth between those two types of activities mm-hmm um, my friends who don't live too far away come in and we give a master class and that's always real motivating for the students too. So that's, that's pretty much my approach to mobile studio class. That's awesome. Considering how busy your schedule is, how do you go about prioritizing your own personal practice time and making sure you're ready for your performances and also your personal time, making sure you're getting everything you need as a human being in addition to as an oboist? That is a wonderful question. Well, (laughs) I do try to utilize um, those small little breaks that I have in the day, like maybe an hour between students or a half hour between students. Um, I, I always feel like even if I have 20 minutes, it's a good time to just maybe try to work out one passage that's been bothering me and something that I'm preparing. Um, And so if I can get a couple of those in during the day and then another hour at night, I just, um, I I just make sure that I can get everything done in that amount of time and have some family time, you know, that really helps balance things out. Even if we're all just sitting in front of the TV watching an episode of Star Trek or something, (laughs) you know, at the end of the day, (laughs) that seems to me, it's like my treat, you know, if I, if I work really hard during the day, then I have that 15 minutes or hour at night, um, that we can all be together and, and, uh, and do something just sort of mindless for a little bit. Is that how you take care of yourself outside of work? Yeah. Family time is very important. Um, also, um, taking long walks that really helps and, and going to the gym, just, you know, really doing something a little cardio or sort of intense for half an hour, 50 minutes really helps me quite a bit. Do you have any particular repertoire that you enjoy assigning or resources that stick out in your mind as great teaching tools? Well, yeah, I, I'm sort of, um, a traditionalist when it comes to etudes, I definitely love the Barrett. I think those are little gems. I just think they're amazing little masterpieces that students can learn about phrasing. Uh, they're not rhythmically um, difficult. Um, so students can really hone their fundamentals working on Barrett and then eventually moving on to Erling. Um, and then as I, uh, I also like to teach through repertoire as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
some of the pieces that I always have my students play, you know, before they graduate at some point, like the Sansal Sonata, the Marcello Concerto in B minor. Um, I love the French conservatoire repertoire, like the Russe, those kinds of pieces I think are great for learning expression. Um, and they're also not too difficult. Uh, so I'm not into um, overly technical pieces at the undergraduate level. I think uh, unless a student is really just taking off, I really want to make sure that those fundamentals are in place before they're worried about, you know, the dazzling um, sort of pieces. So I think that um, in them, the fundamentals and, and improved tone and, and, uh, and phrasing are the ones that I, I tend to focus on. Of course, I think orchestral excerpts are great little teaching tools too. Keeping on the topic of repertoire, what are some of your favorite things to play if you've got a blank recital to plan with no obligations otherwise what are some of your favorite things to practice and perform well if i have any sort of player or instrument at my resources and my at my disposal i should say um i love to play bach cantatas <laughs> i love that repertoire so much um it's not always easy to get like a small little chamber orchestra together and the singer who's willing to do that. But luckily I do have a, a colleague at school. We've collaborated quite a bit on some Bach arias. Mm. Um, in fact, we played a recital of a Bach arias at what are the, at the New York IDRS. So that was incredibly gratifying. Um, yeah. That music of Bach is just so glorious. I, I would just do it in a heartbeat. If I, you know, <laughs> if I ever get the opportunity, I just drop everything and go play some Bach. Do you have a warm-up habit and scale system that you like to use consistently? And I ask because I can never decide on, you know, the perfect thing that I go to every day, you know, to make sure I get all of all of my uh, veggies in or my weightlifting <laughs> <Yeah>. repetitions <laughs> in terms of warming up and scales. What are you? What do you do to warm up? Well, to warm up, I definitely like to start with read alone exercises. Mm. I think that tells tells me and my students if their reads are working. Plus, it just gets a little bit of blood going to the lip, and it's uh, and you can see, yeah, right. If your read is doing what it's supposed to be doing, and then I still use I love the scale and arpeggio sheet that I kind of borrowed from Nancy Ambrose King when I was a student there. It uh, goes through all the scales and arpeggios. And it's sort of a finger builder, too, because it takes you through um, a sort of like three lines of extend, extended uh, range scales, um, major, minor, harmonic, melodic. And, um, and it's, it's to be slurred so that you can just really get those fingers moving. And you can also play them musically. You know, you can play them with phrasing. And so it's, it's kind of cool. Uh, that's my kind of go-to sheet. I also have just, you know, I have a lot of exercise with scales and thirds and fourths and some of the stuff on the body make them. Um, but the scale sheet is the one that's my go-to. I use that a lot in my lessons. Can you tell us about a favorite memory of a past performance that sticks out in your mind? Well, I have to say, um, you know, I alluded to the concerto that I commissioned um, back in 2016 that was quite a highlight performing that uh, definitely one of my favorite moments in, uh, in my performance career. Yeah. I think that's probably the one that sticks out the most. You've given us a happy memory. Would you be willing <laughs> to give us an embarrassing memory of something that had happened to you on stage? Well, let's see. There's so many. Which one should I choose? <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> probably the most obvious one uh, and the one that was probably the most embarrassing was I was substituting in a woodwind quintet for a friend of mine and I didn't know any of the other players um, and but we and I don't remember if we had a lot of rehearsal time. I get this, sort of have this memory that we sort of threw this thing together pretty quickly, but it was a, a recital in the church and we started the first piece and I had the wrong piece of music on my, you know, up. First. No. So uh, yeah, I started playing the wrong piece and really, you know, I realized it after like the first note. No. Um, and, <laughs> and they just kept going and I joined in when I got my music on my stage stand. So 
I'm not sure if the audience was the wiser, but you know, that was sort of a dead <laughs> moment. <laughs> I'm not sure I ever recovered. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was kind of a not sure I recovered from that for the rest of the recital, but <laughs> thank you. That was very embarrassing. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Happy to share that with you. <laughs> so we became acquainted through the Midwest Double Read Society, and I was wondering if you could talk to us about your involvement in that organization and some of the things that you do in MDRS that make you really excited about that contribution. Yeah, well, I've been involved with Midwest Double Read Society ever since I came to KU. Um, it was definitely a smaller organization when I first started. Our annual meetings were um, lasted one hour, and then we had a, a member recital right after that. So it was basically a two-hour affair, and um, we would have a young artist competition every spring. So that was kind of a cool thing. And I became president not too far after I got to KU and thought, um, you know, we probably have the potential to turn this into something a little bigger. So I organized a double read festival with my colleague, Alan Hawkins, who was the um, bassoon teacher at the time before Eric Stamper came along. And we put together a double read festival that, um, you know, we had, it was kind of fun. Like we had tickets to the football game and, and that sort of thing. So it wasn't, we didn't have a guest artist at that point. We were just, um, we had master class maybe and then member recital and the meeting and then we went to a football game or something along those lines. Um, and then it just kind of grew from there and we started having the guests. We started to get more funding, more members. So we were able to, you know, pay a guest fee, uh, guest artist fee. And, um, and it really has blossomed um, quite a bit since I started 20 years ago. And I'm, I'm really happy about it. I, I definitely would love to see it continue to grow. I'd love to see the Double Read Festival get even a little bigger, sort of be like a mini IDRS, maybe last two or three days rather than just one day. But it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Um, and we have the Young Artist Competition still in the spring. So that's been going now for 20 years. What is some advice you would give for a young musician who wants to have a career like yours? Well, um, depending on how young they are, I mean, I guess it's never too soon to start building your CV and thinking about what you can do to make you look impressive on paper. Um, I always encourage students to take any opportunity, any playing opportunity that they can, even if it seems like um, it might be, you might be too busy or it might be something that isn't going to be that much fun. Just take it and, and, and play. Um, maybe it doesn't pay, you know, maybe it's not your favorite repertoire, but mm -hmm. just, just do it and, and, and get that experience. Um, you can always say that no the next time if it wasn't that amazing, but um, get that on your resume uh, and start thinking of something sort of creative that you can do, whether it be starting a trio or a quintet or something that will give you some even further experience that isn't necessarily already out there waiting for you, you know, create your own opportunities. Um, start recording yourself really early. And by recording, I don't just mean recording your um, practice sessions, which I think are really great, but if you can um, get into a nice hall and record yourself playing um, orchestral excerpts, uh, that'll give you great feedback. You can always use, you know, those recordings to help improve yourself. But um, just because I think the recording process can be very daunting. Um, and for a lot of jobs, you do need recordings. Any audition that you can, that, you know, is in with your, within your financial and, you know, physical means to be able to do. Because that audition process is another thing that's very daunting. And if you're getting experience doing those sorts of things, and when the job comes along that you really want, or the opportunity comes along that you really want, you've already worked through what is it like to take an audition? What is it like to make a recording? And, you know, you can just really get past all of that stuff and really put your best foot forward um, with the final product that you need to get that job. And, you know, if it's possible, I know summer festivals are expensive and a lot of students have to work over the summer, but even if you can find a short one, some kind of summer festival, to do so that you can start to network and see how you stand with, you know, students outside of your own school. Um, 
and yeah, just start to meet people and meet new teachers and that sort of thing. Um, I think that's something that every student should at least aspire to do if they, if they possibly can. That is the best life advice I've ever heard. (laughs) 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 I wish I had taken it more when I was younger. (laughs) 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 So this will be released in mid August, which aligns with the beginning of the academic year. So I would love to know some of the things coming up on your plate that you are excited about. Yeah, I have some interesting playing um, opportunities coming up. At the end of August, I'm playing a gig with Weird L. Yankovic, which oh. I, I I think I'm pretty excited about. <laughs> really? Coming to Kansas City. Yeah, I mean, it's great being close to Kansas City because I've had some really fun playing with the that come through town. Um, so uh, that's coming up at the end of August. And then at the end of September, I'm playing the Von Williams Concerto with an orchestra at Park University. Um, and then in October, I'm traveling to Costa Rica to play a piece that was written for oboe, bassoon, and clarinet with their orchestra. Um, that's uh, student composer Sergio Delgado wrote this piece. Um, so I'll play this with my colleagues at the University of Costa Rica, the clarinet and bassoon teacher there. Oh, and then I have a concerto then playing with Kensi Chamber Orchestra in December. So kind of a fun-filled semester. I was going to say, is that all? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, in November is our double read festival. So oh I hope anybody God. listening to this podcast will consider attending the double read festival at the University of Kansas on November 3rd. You should all definitely <laughs> go. Yes. It's a wonderful event. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Margaret, thank you so much for talking to us on the podcast and giving your wonderful advice to our listeners and telling us about your story. We really appreciate it. And we enjoyed talking to you. Wow. Well, thanks for asking. It was my pleasure and my honor to do it. I, I am so impressed with what you guys do. It's just a great, great resource for students and teachers out there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us for that episode. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can listen to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Our next guest on Double Read Dish is the wonderful Steve Vaki, professor of bassoon at the University of Oregon. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go make reads.